Good evening, everyone. Warm welcome, family. It is always good to see the Brosey family here. They are a ray of sunshine, so it's always good to see them. And if you don't know the whole family, they're less of a family and more of a clan. The 13th tribe of Israel, as I like to say. So we're blessed to have them here. We're blessed to have you here. This evening, I'd like to continue a tradition of mine to have an interactive sermon on Sunday evenings where I, I pick a subject, a topic, and I ask three questions. And before we move on to the next question, I solicit three answers from the, from the audience for you. So I want to hear your thoughts this evening as, as we normally do with this. Recently, we started, I started a uh, study of Christ and the church, uh, 13 lessons for that. And we started off with a, a Christmas in July sermon where we talked about the Lord's birth in July. And yes, we sang Christmas songs, but they're actually hymns that you can sing all year long. And then the next sermon in the series, we looked at uh, John the Baptist. And tonight I'm going to atone for that because that's out of order, because tonight we're going to look at Jesus as 12 years old. So we're going to get that on track and back in order. Because chronologically, uh, Jesus was 12 years of age before John the Baptist started preaching in the wilderness. So if you would, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you're in John, flip back one to Luke, chapter 2. In verse 41, where we're going to take up our reading. And this is an unusual story. It's unique because, of course, there's, there's stories about Jesus as a man and there's stories about Jesus as a baby. But there's next to nothing, very little, about Jesus in between a baby and a man. So this is a very unique story that gives us some insight into the Lord. Luke chapter 2, verse 41, reading from the NIV. Every year, his parents, that is Jesus, went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, when all of Israel was required to come together. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. The only thing I can say is there, my first thought is upon reading that is, yikes. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And I want to say, this isn't, they were driving the car, checked the map, had to do a U-turn on the beltway and come back. They were walking on foot. If there was animals, uh, beasts of burden involved, they were carrying goods, not people, because they were not well-to-do by any means. So they were walking for a full day. Then they had to walk all the way back. So moms and dads, picture yourself, your state of mind, as you were entering the city of Jerusalem. Verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, 
after three days, I might not have any hair left. Sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Translation for most of us moms and dads, we are ready to kill you. <laughs> we are very, very highly upset and on the edge of emotional breakdown. Three days after they traveled for a day, came back three days in the city looking for him. They're on foot the whole time. Why were you searching for me? He asked, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And here that now we have one of the very few stories of Jesus, not as a baby and not as a man, but as a lad of 12. So now I want to ask you three questions. The first is, what if any significance is there in Jesus being 12 years old? Steve, you said he's a man, okay? Any other thoughts? What does it mean that he's 12 years old? Yes, I know the next year he's a teenager. <laughs> You know how teenagers are. I knew how I was. <laughs> what does this mean? Because, of course, nothing in the Bible is there by accident. Nothing is in there without purpose. So this fact is pointed out for a reason. What is it? As you're thinking, I'm going to tell you, as I did this lesson, I had a bad case of writer's block, okay, with this, and I don't usually have that. So I'm going to share with you something, a little confession here. What I have in my hands here is a Franklin NIV version of the Bible electronic. It's very old. It's at least 10 years old, so the technology is not the newest and up to date. But my better half gave it to me some many years ago. And me being the old fuddy-duddy I am, I was slow to use it, quite slow. But then I broke down and started using it, because after all, I have my wonderful NIV here in a hard copy, and it has over 30 years of handwritten notes in it that are hard to match anywhere. But I learned to appreciate this. I'm telling you this not only because um, we should always appreciate our gifts. But this thing is very useful as a concordance. For example, it's very, it's more useful than a traditional concordance because not only can you look up a word, you can look up short phrases as well. So if you want to look up the word water, for example, you can see how many hundreds of times it's mentioned in the Old Testament and likewise in the New Testament, that kind of thing. Or in the water, you can look that up. The reason why I'm pointing this out is because I put in 12, 
13 years of age and old. And I basically got nothing. I got this passage here. So thus I had writer's block. Because there's really nothing in the Old Testament that says, at 12 years old, take your males and do this with them. This is the ritual you will do. This is what happens. There's none of that. So actually, my answer to you is not a scripture. It's a commentary, which I don't often do. So tonight is a very extreme exception. Any other thoughts before I go on? Because they had them. Okay. Good point. The various passages where you read where the Pharisees and Sadducees condemned Jesus and his disciples for not eating before washing their hands ceremoniously, that was the Jewish oral tradition. And it was very prevalent in that day and age, in Jesus' time. It was oral. It wasn't for a century or two down the road where it became written. When it was written, it was called the Mishnah. And that was their Jewish tradition written down, and they added to it as they went along. So I'm going to read you a commentary. And this is from BibleGateway.com. If you're familiar with it, it's a very nice site. They give free Bible uh, apps and you can read your Bible online there and they give commentaries as well. What, I'm not big on commentaries, really don't like that, but this time I was forced to kind of into it. So I want to read you this few sentences here. Jesus is 12 years old. If the Mishnah is relevant to the first century Jewish practice, which is likely in this case, and it was because the Jews of that day and age were practicing the Mishnah before it was written down. They were practicing the oral traditions of the Jews then religious instruction would have become more intense for Jesus upon his reaching 12 years of age. And they give some references there that are Hebrew, and we're not going to get into that tonight. The custom of the bar mitzvah for a 13-year-old Jewish boy was not in place at this time. I was fully expecting to read something from the Old Testament that would cover this. The bar mitzvah came at 13 far later. So this is mentioned to meet the oral traditions, if you will, of the Jewish leaders at this time. Not that there's a scripture for it. So I want to just point that out, because I looked all over the place for this and could find nothing else. And I don't really, Steve, that was a great answer, I don't really view it as, as um, his becoming a man. Um, because if, if you think about it, when Joseph is introduced in Genesis 37, as he's introduced as 17 years old and he's called a boy, even though he's 17, okay? Which when I was 17, I really resented that. But now that I'm 57, I was a boy. Okay. Um, so that's, what it meant was is that he has a voice in the, the religious community, a, a responsibility and a role in the religious community to learn and to work in a religious setting. And he, he has an obligation in that regard. And he is recognized as someone who has a place 
in the Jewish community, the religious community. Any other thoughts or comments or questions about that? It's a very obscure topic, actually, and I was surprised because, again, the Bible does not mention these facts without a purpose or a meaning. So with that, I'm not going to hold you to the three-answer three rule because, like I said, I had a bad case of writer's block with this one. But it is very interesting. And the point is, even though he has just started the formal instruction religiously, they're not teaching him anything. He already knows the answers. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers, verse 47. They weren't teaching him anything, because you can't teach God anything. Quite simply. Next question. What do the reactions of Jesus' parents and then Jesus' reaction in response to them tell you? Were the parents being unreasonable? I like that answer. Good boy. <laughs> what would you be doing? That's what I would be doing. We've been looking for you for five days. You worry about their health and their well-being, and then you want to kill them. And you find out they're all right. And that's just the way we parents are. For all you, you younger folks, we, that's the way we are. It's not logical, but that's the way it is. So they're very, very concerned because they love their son. They love their son, Jesus. What does it tell you? Are they being unreasonable? No. What about Jesus' reaction? Yeah. What's the problem? What? What? Is this, is this out of the ordinary? Out of the ordinary? <laughs> I've got all kind of father's jokes I could put on this. But you get the idea. Yes. Anybody else? What does... Steve? Uh oh. I'm Italian, I can say that. Go ahead. And they, I'm going to say this yeah, to interrupt you. Uh, that's a good point because considering they were traveling on foot, they were in a caravan, you know, the children were together. Yeah. Right, so the, the, it was probably a cacophony, to use a nice word, a, a mishmash of sound and noise. So yes, very much so. Does that surprise me that they would not have at least checked to see that he was with them when they started the journey, you know, back? That's possible, for whatever reasons, for whatever reasons. Anybody else? Jesus' reaction. Okay, I'm going to give you two verses because there's no verse that says, and this is why Jesus reacted this way, of course. But I want to give you two verses to look into Jesus' mindset. And the first is the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 16. So if you would please turn there. John, chapter 5. Verse 16 through 18. And Jesus says, so, or John writes, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, because he just did a healing, the Jews persecuted him, 
Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Some critics of the Bible try to say Jesus never said, I am God, quote unquote, those exact words. But he did say it to the mind of a Jew, because that was his audience who he was speaking to. Here he unequivocally expresses that he himself is God, beyond a shadow of a doubt. So he is saying God is his father. What does that make Jesus? Of course the son, but I'm getting at with the siblings. It makes him the big brother, does it not? He's certainly not the little brother. He's not an equal brother. He's the big brother. And, and let's look at another passage here to further explain this. Hebrews chapter 2, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, and James. Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to start reading in verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. That is, the author is Jesus, the Son. Both the one who makes men holy and those who were made holy, that is Jesus, the one who makes men holy, and those who were made holy, that is us, you and me, the church, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. That's a quote from Psalms 22. And I will put my trust in him is a quote from Isaiah. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Why am I quoting this passage here? Because this is the purpose of the work. Jesus says, my father is always working. I'm always working. And this is the purpose of the, of the work. So that Jesus can say to the father, here am I and the children God has given me. All of Jesus' work is to make you and I acceptable to God when he offers us to him on the day of judgment, on the last day. And that's what he is working towards relentlessly until it is achieved. So then, when you look at those two passages and understand that mindset, yeah, why would Jesus be anywhere else but in the temple? Telling people, teaching people, so that they would be prepared to be presented to God. Third question. How can Jesus, who is God, grow in wisdom? And there things get a little tricky. How does God grow in wisdom? Because it says, verse 52, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. It's very similar to the verse, verse 40, right before our reading. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. He grew in wisdom. How is it that Jesus can grow in wisdom? Yes, Steve.
to thought. That's an interesting thought. Anyone else? Good. Good thought. Anyone else? Because really we're going to get into a principle with this. Any other thoughts about this? How could Jesus grow in wisdom? Here, let me, while you're thinking, because I still want to hear from you, I want to give you a verse. We're going to come back to Hebrews, so mark Hebrews, and turn with me back to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 46. In John chapter 8, verse 46, Jesus makes an incredible claim. John 8, 46, Jesus says, Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He says, Can any of you prove me guilty of doing anything wrong? Husbands, imagine saying that to your wives. Wives, imagine saying that to your husbands. Children to your parents and likewise. He makes the statement, not to a close friend, but to a hostile crowd that's really opposed to him and looking for blood. They're out for blood. And nobody says, well, you did this, this, and wrong. You know, imagine a politician saying that in this day and age. It's not happening. Jesus makes this extraordinary claim. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? And the answer is, of course, it's rhetorical, no, because he did no wrong. Yes? Yes. Right. Even though they can prove him of nothing else wrong. Nothing else wrong unless he is not God, even though he claims to be God. But yet, there's no evidence that he is anything but God. Any other thoughts before I answer this? We were in Hebrews 2. I want to go back to Hebrews 2. And we're going to finish the next verses. Hebrews 2, we left off at verse 13. We're going to read 14 to the end, 18. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Hebrews is a very unique book in how it addresses Jesus as man and God. So that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. By Jesus' death he destroys the devil, his power of death. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death, you and me. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That is a very powerful set of verses. See, Jesus is perfect. He is perfect as in innocent, pure of sin. He is perfect in that he knows all things. Other passages in, in John say, Lord, we know that you know all things, the disciples said to him. 
but he was made perfect as a high priest, that is, as flesh and blood, as one of us. Think of the arguments on Judgment Day. How would you know what it's like to be here on earth and suffer all the blood, sweat, and tears at ground zero to go through everything we have? Have you done that? Jesus can say, yes. Yes, I have, and I did it all for you. He is made perfect as our high priest that we can cry on his shoulder because he's been there. If you think of his life, every form of suffering he went through. The two biggest fears we have in humanity are rejection and physical pain. He went through both. He was rejected by everybody and he was tortured to death. He went through it all. His own family betrayed him, turned their backs. His closest friends. Have you ever had anybody betray you? Somebody that you trusted? How did you feel? Would you be willing to go and die for them the next, the next moment after that? I can't say I would. I'm not as good as that. But we have a high priest who is as good as that. He was made perfect as our high priest. We can go to him and tell him all our troubles, our struggles, and he can say, just like parents do to their children, when they fall down and scrape a knee and we scoop them up, and we say, I know, when they're crying, I know, I know. Because he's not some faraway diplomat that lives in a bubble and doesn't know what we're all about. He knows. He knows all of our struggles and our pain. He's made perfect as our high priest. So that is how Jesus can grow in wisdom. So what we see here is Jesus as 12 years of age showing great wisdom and great dedication to God. And he is made perfect as our high priest. And we thank God for that wonderful truth. To anyone who is not a Christian, please turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Jesus can be your high priest. He can represent you before God, and you can cry on his shoulder and tell him all that's in your heart, and he'll make you clean and new. In Acts chapter 2, in verse 38, Peter says, well, actually, verse 36, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's not limited to Jesus. I mean, to, to Israel. It is all the world. Everyone can be sure that Jesus Christ is Lord. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent, that is to change your mind, to change your view, and be baptized, that is to be immersed, to be dipped in water, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And in verse 41, it says that those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. We don't, you don't have to wait for 3,000 to come forward. If anyone is not a Christian, we invite you to come forward now and become a Christian today. God bless you.